14, the empty tomb. The most difficult part of faith to me is the part where you actually have to have faith. Consider this definition of faith and think of the implications of it against the backdrop of our world today. By faith, man completely submits his intellect and his will to God. That's from the Catechism, paragraph 143. Think about what is being requested here. If I completely give my intellect and will to anything, wouldn't that just make me an automaton or a robot? How gullible do you think I am? You know, blind faith, that's how cults get started. The definition that I just mentioned seems too extreme. I I just couldn't subscribe to it without a very compelling reason to do so, without ample evidence and reason behind why I would ever submit wholly to anything. So first, to even bring me to the table to consider this deal or negotiation, the product or service needs to offer an amazing deal, a prize that cannot be gotten anywhere else through any other vendor. You know, I've already written about the efforts I've given toward things of this world, such as alcohol and knowledge and work and writing and exercise. But in those pursuits, I didn't give complete power over myself. You might say I divided up my intellect and will between a few pursuits at a time, but never fully to any single thing. And while drinking, I never reached anywhere near the point of total nihilism like that of leaving Las Vegas with Nicolas Cage. I certainly never won my age group in any marathons or foot races or triathlons, proving that I could have trained a lot harder. At work, I may throw myself into tasks, but eventually I slack off or burn out. I don't know that I've ever given myself completely to anything. And while I pursued those things, I imagined that I could still be good, or more specifically, virtuous. Obviously, I was more virtuous with exercise as my highest priority rather than alcohol. But what I want and desire to be is to be vigilant in in staying virtuous. So, And from the self-help books of today, whether it's Stoicism or self-help or Epicureanism or Confucianism or Buddhism, a code of ethics can be found in many places. Each of those codes can be applied for living virtuously and righteously to a pretty high degree of success, I would say. For a time, I was enamored with Marcus Aurelius's meditations. In fact, I still am. He recorded an amazing list of thoughts on living righteously as he simultaneously tried to halt the rise of a rival Christian ethics that was catching fire among citizens of the empire that he reigned over. Today, a modern Stoic movement's rise is gathering steam among the secular world as its core teachings fit into an inward-looking self-reliance and meditation and mindfulness, which mindfulness seems to be the secular term for prayer that is in use today, which which is great, but it's just a slightly different way of looking at it. To this day... I refer back to certain passages in my dog-eared copy of Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. For instance, this passage is powerful to me. Whatever anyone says or does, I must be a good man. It is as if an emerald or gold or purple were always saying, whatever anyone does or says, I must be an emerald and keep my color. 
That's from chapter 7 in Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. The book contains an amazing set of ideas for living, many of which you can find strong parallels in the Gospels in the, world, in the words of Jesus. Verses on forgiveness, kindness, strength, and the fleeting nature of life jump off the page. Marcus Aurelius's writings contain a remarkable worldview that works well, but in my, my opinion, there is one crack in the Stoic concrete that the ice of life wedges apart. The Stoics look for help from within, while the Christian looks for help from outside, from God, from the Holy Spirit. The inward versus outward gaze makes all the difference. I've already learned the hard way that my willpower alone does not work, or does not work for long whenever I have tried. Willpower and discipline come from the self, but without connecting the mind and body to the external God, we cannot overcome our own built-in flaws. I have character flaws that cannot be unwound from inside me because they are written on my bones and in my brain. The power to overcome these flaws cannot start from within me because the power doesn't live in me. The power is outside of me and I need to let it in to be there. If I don't let it in, I can't find it there. Once I let the Holy Spirit in, then I can create a little chapel in the heart where I can go for strength and trust to remove anxiety and fear. In addition, the Stoic method works best when you're feeling strong, not when you're feeling weak, not when you're ill, and not when you're an elderly person. The Stoic way approaches life's problems from a position of strength when the wheel of fortune has spun and given you a good value. Emotionless love and shades of forgiveness exist in Marcus Aurelius, but nothing like the forgiveness that Jesus commands. The best example is when Peter asks Jesus, how many times should we forgive someone? And he throws out a number, like seven. Uh, is seven times enough? Is that cool, Jesus? I can hear the wheels turning in Peter's head. You know, about the whole forgiveness thing, what's the actual max number of times we, can, we have to forgive someone before we can hate them again without feeling bad? I can just hear him thinking about someone that he's irritated with and as he's asking that question. It's probably his brother Andrew or one of the other apostles. And then Jesus delivers one of the greatest one-liners on forgiveness, shooting down Peter's questions. question. I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. And that's probably not what Peter was looking for in the answer, but the one that he needed to hear. Again, I can imagine Peter nodding and thinking, Wow, I was almost a seven times forgiving Andrew. I mean, I was thinking that in basketball, after seven fouls, you get the bonus and the free throws, but I'm not even close now. So the other person gets to commit 70 more fouls, and I have to keep forgiving him. So anyway, that's why I like Peter. I just feel like he's relatable. Uh, his weaknesses and his eye for shortcuts seem very close to my own. And I appreciate that in the honesty of those stories about him. If anything makes the Christian message stand out from all others, it's the approach. Rather than coming from a position of strength, the message of Jesus comes from a position of vulnerability and humility. 
Jesus comes to serve the weak, not the strong. This unexpected twist on power flips the script on all deities. We do not gain God's favor by our ability or our knowledge, but by our need for God. And God gives the grace if only we ask for it. We used to joke, what is the best kind of beer? The answer was free beer. This grace from God is free, and it really is much better than free beer. Because it's usually watered down and it gives you a headache the next day anyway. I just have to ask for help. I have to ask for help, and God fortifies me against anything. I need to be weak and need help to be strong. It's such a strange contradiction. Admitting it is hard to need help, and asking for help goes against much of our worldly instincts. In fact, it goes against everything today because you want to believe in yourself, reach goals, do things, strive, always go for the next hurdle. But this message reverberates through the entire Christian era, even in a recent homily from Pope Francis. Be reconciled, Pope Francis said. The journey is not based on our own strength. No one can be reconciled to God on his or her own. What enables us to return to him is not our own ability or merit, but his offer of grace. The beginning of the return to God is the recognition of our need for him and his mercy, our need for his grace. This is the right path, the path of humility. Do I feel in need or do I feel self-sufficient? So that's, that sums up a lot of it. I've always felt self-sufficient or that I need to be self-sufficient. If a code of ethics is all we want or need, then Christianity would never have got off the ground. Even the ancient world had plenty of self-help philosophies. So what sets Jesus apart from others is the claim that he is God, but he serves everyone and forgives everyone and suffers. All of this from a position of weakness rather than strength. This is a wild claim. It's a wild claim to make and either puts him into one of two categories. He's either telling the truth or he's insane. If he is insane, then he's lying about being the son of God. And if he's lying, the resurrection is bogus. And if the resurrection does not occur, then all of the New Testament can be thrown out. And St. Paul said this very clearly, that all is in vain without the resurrection. Even the ethics and morals are moot because the ancient world already had plenty of moral teachers, ones that were not insane or not that insane. If virtue is the sole goal, then options already existed. And thus, it all comes down to the resurrection, all of it. Every miracle and parable, every clever comeback and turning of the cheek, if the resurrection does not occur, then the whole New Testament is a tale like any other mythology. As I mentioned early, one, earlier, one of the turning points in my loss of faith came from asking questions about the empty tomb and that it seemed easy to remove a body and claim the resurrection happened. Not only that, but the different gospel accounts of the empty tomb still conjure up those old doubts in me. Were there guards posted at the tomb or not? Who did the women see there? Who was that guy? Was it one man or two men? Was it an angel? Exactly how many women came to the tomb? And can we get the names, please? Was the stone still in place or already rolled back? 
How heavy was that stone? How were the women going to roll back the stone for anointing if it was sealed? Were they at the wrong tomb? Did Mark add the resurrection paragraph after his first writing? And if so, did he think the empty tomb spoke for itself? Or did he add it to fix his story later on? Where is the tomb? Okay, that can go on and on. And it has gone on among scholars for a long, long time. And I'm not going to go any further into my former doubts on the tomb because I stumbled across a book, a used book in a Goodwill thrift store, and it was called Who Moved the Stone? And I'd never heard of it, but it went into all of these questions. And I'm glad someone else already did the heavy lifting, so to speak, on Who Moved the Stone? There's a lot of uh, questions there. It was written by a person who had the same doubts. And uh, anyway, I'd recommend it. I just needed to read that short book to soak up the answers I was longing for regarding the tomb. And there's much on that if you were looking to read about the stone. I'm, not, I'm also not going to go further on the tomb because of one other major reason that I cannot explain away. I cannot fathom the immense drive and spirit of the apostles who tended to waffle, quibble, and argue over everything. The flaws and frailties of these men make them clearly human, not fictitious. And they went from cardboard in strength to a steel alloy in conviction. And then they had strength and boldness. Their, their message never wavered in the aftermath. The only explanation to me is that they did in, indeed experience and confirm the resurrection of Jesus. All of the apostles were fearful and had fled to hiding places during and after the crucifixion, but then became recklessly fearless and willing to suffer any amount of pain to tell the world what happened. Uh, this is a quote from Chris Stefanik. These first Christians didn't give their lives for a philosophical system. They died to uphold what they knew because they had seen it with their own eyes. Had it been a lie, then why die for it? One after another, these eyewitnesses gave up their lives defending the truth they had seen, which was Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead. So suddenly, somehow, Peter goes from being weak and scared and furtive to this fortress of faith. And he's crucified upside down 30 years later, having preached the message his entire life with no education beyond that of a fisherman. The other apostles fare the same, and that is to say they fare badly as they are stoned, burned, stabbed, beaten, boiled, clubbed, and crucified. All the while they are relentless in spreading this message, alone in different areas of the known world, and they're telling the same story. If they were up to clever tricks about the tomb or Jesus' body, someone would have cracked and tattled. Moreover, if the authorities, Jewish or Roman, had stolen or hidden the body, they would have just produced it and ended it all. So something happened, something profound, something mysterious, something impossible and life-changing for these people. And Robert Barron says it best in the Word on Fire Bible on page 280. He says, that this dejected band 
would spontaneously generate the faith that would send them careening around the world with the message of resurrection strains credulity. What is undeniably clear is that something had happened to Jesus, something so strange that those who witnessed it had no category to describe it. So with, with daily readings, I have come to believe. My faith has come by effort and truly needs continual conversion to stay strong. I wish I had fallen off a horse like Paul did. The church talks about continual conversion and the need to restore the belief. And this is true. In coaching, there's a saying that you need to refill your E-tank. That's your emotional tank from time to time. And that is true of coaching and it's true of faith. Belief can feel like a gas tank that needs a fill-up, which is why daily prayer is so beneficial to it. And faith is also like fitness, where as soon as you stop exercising, the backsliding into sloth and muscle atrophy begins. Whenever we lose focus, we start to slide, and the world has many distractions to pull that focus away. In fact, modern technology is entirely based on pulling our focus away, which is why programmers and marketers have focus groups and A-B advertising tests to figure out how to pull our focus away from life so that instead we focus on their products and services. All of this drains the E-tank of faith. As an example of losing that focus and how quickly and easily it can happen, this morning I had spent some time reading and praying and felt ready for the day, both in mind, spirit, and body. I got into my car and started driving. At the first stoplight, a driver didn't realize the light had turned green, and I almost knee-jerkingly wanted to honk and call the man an idiot. I find this remarkable as I had just spent time reading about humility and about the lack of it among the Pharisees. For they preach, but they do not practice. And I am such a Pharisee that way. How easy it is to be moral and righteous when I'm all alone, and how difficult it is to be when I'm in real interactions with real people. You know, particularly in our cars, it seems like so many of us today leap to anger almost instantly over minuscule events and perceived insults. I'll apply that same sentiment to social media, which is the greatest poison to my peace of mind of all modern invention. At least in my car, only I can hear whatever cruel whim flits between my ears. But that's not so on Facebook and YouTube comments and on Twitter, where we are all free to spew angsty discord to the entire world. In observation of the human heart and mind that so quickly drifts from its intention and hopes, I cannot imagine the remaining 11 apostles who were ordinary men sticking to their wits and resolve with such commitment unless they were utterly convinced of the rising of Jesus. This accomplishment was not completed behind closed doors by reading and writing, but by interaction in the world in the face of monstrous opposition. They did not bring the message by the sword, but rather the sword was put to them. These ordinary people did not flinch or crumble, as if their sign of the cross made their spirit, if not their bodies, impervious to the slings and arrows of the world. Now, if they had solely come up with a great idea or story that satisfied our hearts, they might have convinced only gullible people to believe. 
If that were the case, then the powers of the world wouldn't really have worried about them. But the apostles took this idea of the risen Jesus into the heart of the intellectual world of Jerusalem. And shockingly, these uneducated men won the argument. The eleven didn't flee to the hinterlands and start proclaiming. They returned to the very location of the trial and death of Jesus, where witnesses lived and where the events occurred. That's where people would have known what had happened. So there's, there's another quote I want to read here. It's, there's, there's the indisputable fact that Christianity was gaining adherence at a prodigious pace. The movement was spreading beyond all reasonable expectation. The terrific persecution of Saul involving an inquisition to places as far distant as distant as Damascus shows that four years later it had grown to really alarming proportions. Now put this fact together with who first witnessed and started to tell about the risen Jesus. It was the women at the tomb there first, and Mary Magdalene explicitly is mentioned. So the very first voice that recognizes and announces the missing body and resurrection is a woman who had seven devils driven out of her and was a sinful woman. So if you're spinning a yarn and the gospel writers would have posted someone of political or worldly significance, they would have wanted someone like Caiaphas, the high priest who might have come to the tomb and said, I I was wrong. I can't believe it. It's true. And, or Pilate would have came down and thrown himself into prayer. But no, the witness to the most important event in history is a fallen woman who would, who would have no clout, nor enfranchisement, nor any influence on anyone. Yet she is the chosen witness, fitting with the whole, the last will be first and the first will be last that Jesus taught. The empty tomb, as seen by the women, is undisputed. There seems to be no one arguing that the body is gone and the burial clothes were left behind. In fact, no one obviously ever was able to produce his body because the Romans or the Jewish leaders would have done so. The only argument seems to be about what happened to the body, but not about the empty state of the tomb and the women being the first to discover it. The second voice is Peter's, the fisherman. And his proclamation starts with something I think is kind of funny assuring that when in his first great sermon in Acts of the Apostles that he and his followers are not drunk. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of funny that he needs to say this, and it suggests that he knew this message sounded radical and crazy. Without any education or platform to deliver knowledge, Peter begins by telling people, really, people, I'm not on drugs. But the message is not aimed at simpletons. Rather, he's delivering it to devout Jews from every nation under heaven staying in Jerusalem. This implies both uneducated people and intellectuals. If this were all a charade and a tale, the leader would need to be someone steeped in rhetoric and debate to handle the rebuttals and logical criticisms that would come immediately. But this is a man who catches fish for a living, and he somehow convinces thousands upon thousands that what he has seen is true in the city where the event occurred, where people knew all about it. So Peter is not a genius or a shrewd salesperson. 
But after Jesus' death, his character is altered dramatically. I often think of the saying, the truth requires no rehearsal. This is why salespeople and lawyers need to rehearse their arguments and their, their product demonstrations and pitches, because there is a roundabout angle to getting to the truth if your truth is a crafted story, which in business world, they're always talking about crafting stories. But Peter is able to speak plainly from the heart and people believe him. Unrehearsed, he has no PowerPoint, he has no swag to give out to the people because he's telling the truth and wouldn't be able to convince any, anyone if he were telling a contrived fiction. He doesn't have the training and toolkit to do that. His transformation is unexplainable without the Holy Spirit filling him with the grace to do this, this gift. The same can be said for the others who became warriors of faith after having so recently been trembling and afraid at the crucifixion, hiding out, or in even returning to their old jobs after being devastated at the death of Jesus, thinking that he had not redeemed Israel after all. So more from the uh, Who Moved the Stone, I have a couple quotes. It took an objective encounter with the risen Jesus to crystallize the disciples' faith in him and cause them to proclaim his resurrection. Visions and subjective experiences would not have done it. Something had been seen, something real. Gethsemane's cowards became Pentecost's heroes. This is inexplicable without the resurrection. Had prestige, wealth, and increased social status accrued to new believers when they professed Christ and his resurrection, their profession would be logically understandable. In fact, however, their rewards were of a different type, eventually involving lions, crucifixion, and every other conceivable method of stopping them from talking. I spent many years refuting and mocking the idea of the resurrection of Jesus. I have made many rude thoughts about it, siding with the doubters and logicians, writing off miracles as artifacts of an age where the world was haunted by demons. In reality, I guess my abandonment of Christianity was one response, because frankly, if you do not believe the resurrection, then the only answer is total rejection. St. Paul has said the same as many others without the resurrection. What's the point of it all? I cannot explain how resurrection can occur, nor do I need to because I believe now that events can happen beyond our comprehension, that science does not and will never explain everything. Even if life is discovered on other planets or our physicists take us to the depths of the quantum world and biology cures the last disease and psychologists can explain away and describe solutions for all mental ailments, Nothing can replace the need for God in my heart, as I have followed it all the way down to the end of the line, and I know that the answer to all questions is through faith, by surrendering my will and intellect to belief in the resurrection of Jesus. The flaw of humanity is real, and I find nothing more convincing than the resurrection of Jesus as the cure for the forgiveness of me and my enemies, as the only way to live in the world and hold on to one another for the promise of the next. There is only one path to removing hate, and that is forgiveness and love, and that is why the power of the Christian message never diminishes or dies.
right now the world we may be calling it post-christian but it's not as nothing the secular world can offer will ultimately replace the message of love and forgiveness through god the united states and the chinese empires of today will fall away like every other empire before it like the ussr the third reich the austro-hungarians the ottomans the habsburgs the holy roman empire the romans the greeks and a thousand other of these willed sandcastles of mankind. Yet the truth of faith will endure. People have in the past and will again in the future use and abuse and twist the faith to make it a tool of worldly power and of human flaws. But the center will hold because love and forgiveness shine through any lies in the end. Straying from that cannot go on forever because the believers are like yo-yos who must come back to the starting point. Nothing can shake the power of the message that empowered the very first believers of Jesus and time and again those who hold steadfast to the golden rule correct the errant ways of a drifting faith. To this day, the power of the word remains fully charged and this is because of the resurrection. From a position of weakness, forgiveness, and love, we are saved from death, and the faith will carry that forward, and it will never end. While we quibble over traffic and split our families over politics and moralize over sexuality and death, and we obsess with celebrities and materialism, and we entertain ourselves with movies and music and distract ourselves with phones and computers, the righteousness of Jesus' message and resurrection remains unbothered by it all. Even if Christians go back into hiding for a thousand years and the followers are once again hunted down, as they really even are now today in parts of the world, the faith will never die because there is nothing better on offer. There is nothing like resurrection. There's nothing like the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing above it and nothing with more truth and nothing more satisfying to the heart. We are the inheritors of the greatest mystery of all time. We are the same as those originals, lost and found, and we are the same people over and over again. We may start out like Saul, but end up like Paul, and unable to explain how or why it happened, just as we can't fully explain the resurrection. And once you choose to believe it, you don't have to explain it. I just know that it is real, and that I have changed. So one last quote here from the book. The phenomenon that here confronts us is one of the biggest dislodgments of events in the world's history, and it can be accounted for only by an initial impact of colossal drive and power. A habitual doubter like Thomas, a rather weak fisherman like Peter, a gentle dreamer like John, a practical tax gatherer like Matthew, a few seafaring men like Andrew and Nathaniel, the inevitable women, and at most two or three others. Seriously, does this rather heterogeneous body of simple folk reeling under the shock of the crucifixion, the utter degradation and death of their leader, look like the driving force we require? Frankly, it does not. Something came into the lives of these very simple and ordinary people that transformed them.